Hello, and welcome to Business Talk, presented by Business West and Living Local. Hi, I'm Chris Kellogg from the Kellogg Crew Morning Show on 94.7 WMAS, and here is your host for this episode of Business Talk. He's the editor and associate publisher of Business West. Here's George O'Brien. Okay, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Business Talk. This is a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local. We are happy to be with you this morning. We have a terrific guest with us today. He is Peter DiPergola. He is the Chief Ethics Officer and Senior Director of Clinical Ethics at Bay State Health. Peter is one of the finalists for our Alumni Achievement Award. We've been having these finalists on over the last couple of weeks. Uh, for those of you who may not know, and most of you do, uh, we have a competition we call 40 Under 40, which as that name suggests, recognizes rising stars in the area who are under the age of 40. Peter, you were a 40 under 40 winner. Was it 2015? That's correct. We take nominations from all those alumni for 40 under 40, uh, pass them on to our judges. And and Peter, you were one of the five finalists. I think that uh, you wowed them uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, what you do, first of all, but not only that, but how you do it and how you become an expert in your field. So, Peter, we have uh, a lot of lawyers in this region. We have a lot of accountants. We have several mayors. We even have a few business writers. But uh, we only have one chief ethics officer and senior director of clinical ethics. We only have one bioethicist uh, that that I can count. Uh, And you're it. Can you tell us, uh, first of all, what a bioethicist does, and, and then quickly segue into how you got into this field? Sure. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to speak on it. Bioethicists can be uh, at least one of two things. Um, you could go into the field of academics and uh, teach bioethics, which is um, trying to understand and parse out the ethical implications on uh, life issues. Uh, Bioethics typically relates to healthcare ethics and medical ethics. So helping uh, view controversial uh, technologies and therapies and try to parse out not just what we have a right to do, but what is in fact right to do. Uh, And there's an important relationship between medicine law and bioethics in the sense that medicine tells us what we're able to do and the law tells us what we're allowed to do. Uh, but bioethics tries to answer what is good to do in light of what is possible and what is uh, permissible. Uh, my particular uh, discipline is clinical bioethics. I am a formally trained academic bioethicist, but I'm also a clinical bioethicist. And that means that I meet with patients, families, healthcare providers, uh, and healthcare administrators as they are on the ground dealing with uh, life and death uh, decision-making Uh, from the beginning uh, to the middle to the end of life. And how I sort of got into this was that I grew up in a very healthcare uh, dominated family and my mother was a critical care nurse. And uh, at the time I was growing up the nurse manager of the intensive care unit at Bay State Medical Center. I was uh, truly in awe of the, the difficult decisions that were being made every day on that unit And I knew that I wanted to be involved, but in a non-traditional way. So I I knew that I wanted to help individuals to meet them where they are, uh, to help them navigate the moral terrain of life and death uh, decision-making, but to do so without actually practicing uh, medicine physically, to help do uh, the thinking of medicine and how 
not just what we can uh, apply, but what we ought to apply and bring to, to different situations. So just so our listeners will understand, talk a little about what you do day in and day out and, and some of these end-of-life situations that you're working with, uh, with both patients and their families. Sure. So um, my role predominantly is to sort of receive uh, an ethics consultation, and I can walk you through a, a, a regular day in just a moment. But what happens is that there's an ethical issue uh, that is identified by a patient or a family member but very often by um, a healthcare provider, and they're looking for guidance. Uh, they know what they're able to do, and they know what the law says, but they need help figuring out the right thing to do. So it could be resolving different uh, disputes that arise uh, between healthcare providers and patients, but most often it's um, questions about whether or not life-sustaining medical treatment should continue to be to be provided for an individual uh, to whom it's unclear if it's going to offer net clinical benefit. And how does a loving family member who needs to know, understandably, that they've done everything they can for the person they love most, make the difficult moral decision to identify that sometimes the disease makes decisions over which we don't have control and more medical treatment is not equivalent to better or more ethical uh, medical treatment. So helping uh, patients and families and even healthcare providers break down uh, sort of the ethical metaphysics of uh, what goes into these decision-making uh, efforts, what makes right decisions right, uh, what makes them justified, uh, and how to avoid what I often uh, refer to as the least bad option. Uh, no one ever calls for an ethics consult when there's something clearly right to do. Uh, it's usually I have a variety of poor options and I need guidance on selecting what might be the least bad thing to do. Hmm. We have a lot to get into and we're going to get there, but but talk a little bit about what it's like to, to do this work. Hard decisions, difficult decisions every day long, uh, dealing with end-of-life issues. Um, this must be very difficult work, but also rewarding in a number of different ways. Talk about that perspective of it. Sure. It is incredibly uh, rewarding work. Uh, I would also not be fully honest if, if I said that it was, it was easy work. It certainly is not easy. Some days uh, you go home with more burdens than others. But one thing that's important and I think that can be helpful to pride oneself on in doing this difficult kind of work, and I'm by no means alone, my colleagues across the hospital um, and across the nation who work in healthcare face these uh, difficult decisions all of the time. Um, the consolation, I suppose, is the ability to be invited by complete strangers to enter into the most intimate corners of their lives at times when they are most vulnerable and to be trusted to help provide some guidance um, and some assistance on how to think through what is the most loving decision possible for their, for their family. And so it's an incredible honor uh, to serve patients and their families and healthcare providers in that capacity to help them think through it. And if you could leave a particular situation that's very difficult, very burdensome, slightly better than you found it, then you've done something remarkably good. 
And I think the important thing to remember uh, as healthcare providers is that though we may be entering into these difficult conversations with patients and families regularly, multiple times, I, I could have on any given day, you know, 10 to 12 end of life conversations with 10 to 12 different families. But every time you go into it, it's that family's first time and you need to approach it as if it is the first time. So understanding our own limitations, being aware of compassion fatigue and finding ways to recharge the batteries is really critical to doing, uh, to doing this work well. I can understand that. Uh, this is Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local. We are talking with Peter Deepergola. He is the Chief Ethics Officer and Senior Director of Clinical Ethics at Bay State Health and one of Business West's five finalists for its Alumni Achievement Award. Peter, your work was taken to a different level recently and your career to a different level as well with a, a white paper you recently wrote. Let me see if I get this title right. Ethical Guidelines for the Treatment of Patients with Suspected or Confirmed Novel Coronavirus Disease. COVID-19 is published in the online journal of health ethics. Uh, This white paper gave you a a lot of attention and it brought COVID into the forefront. Uh, It must have been, uh, first of all, difficult to write. Uh, Talk about how it came about and, and what it meant for you to be part of this. Sure. Um, so the the white paper is uh, the result of the work that I undertook at Bay State Health as, um, at the time, the director of clinical ethics to provide guidance for our health system and for um, our providers on how to deal with the difficult decisions that may have had to be made uh, but thankfully were not made in terms of how to allocate very scarce resources. As you uh, can remember, almost every news story when you turned on the television was the shortage of ventilators, the worry that um, individuals, particularly with um, a, a SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, respiratory uh, virus, uh, would need uh, mechanical ventilation many of them to to survive, uh, particularly in the most severe cases. And so what we needed to think through as a health system and as uh, a community was how do we decide who would receive a scarce resource in the event that the need overwhelmed our uh, supply of those resources. And so the ethical guidelines provide both general guidance on how to approach a public health emergency and then go into the nitty-gritty of exactly how scarce resources should be allocated, uh, various different scoring systems that can be used, how to identify and then employ different triage teams that would be involved in the decision-making so that the individual provider who's caring for the patient wouldn't always be disproportionately burdened with having to make the decision uh, about the patient before him or before her. And um, then communication tools and protocols for how to have these difficult uh, conversations with with patients and their families. And so the result of those uh, guidelines that were specific to Bay State Health were then uh, made more general and published in the online journal of health ethics, which is a 
globally accessible, open access, peer-reviewed journal uh, that will always be free. It was important for me to, to have the paper published at a journal that I knew individuals, regardless of their ability to pay or location in the world, would have access to. And as somebody who was um, uh, sort of educated uh, as, as a young person by the Sisters of St. Joseph, their mission of providing a high-quality education or access to education to those least likely to have access to it uh, was forever emblazoned on my mind. And I, I wanted to make sure that, that this would never uh, be a publication that would be paywalled. Now, again, you wrote these, this white paper back in, in March or early April. This was the, the height of the pandemic in this area, uh, a much different situation than it is now. Like you said, I don't think anyone would have to consult with this and, and actually debate who would get care and who would, who would get a respirator. But, but back then, the situation was much different. What, what was it like to write this? It was, as, as I mentioned in, in our conversations uh, previously, it was a very haunting experience. Um, it was something that kept me up every single night as I composed it. We are not dealing with light topics. We're, we're dealing with life and death. And if this was to be accepted, uh, which it ultimately was, it would significantly impact uh, our community. Now, our hand was forced. We, we would never have wanted to develop something like this. Uh, but by virtue of the circumstances, we needed to have a plan on, on how to care well for the patients uh, who were entrusted to us. And so the experience was very haunting. Uh, some of the guidelines and protocols that I developed and oversaw and then implemented would have precluded many of my own family members who may be uh, sick with multiple comorbidities from receiving access to a scarce uh, resource. So the professional and personal discomfort of knowing that I'm doing the good for the greatest amount of people, but at the same time that uh, having the disproportionate effect of harming the people that I personally love most uh, was something that was extremely difficult in trying. Do you have any guesses as to just how close it came to this actually being put into play to actually be implemented at Bay State? Uh, was it days? Yeah, it's, a really, it's a really good question. I, w I would say um, weeks. And there is so much uncertainty that at any given moment, uh, we could have become so disproportionately overwhelmed um, that we that we would have needed to use these guidelines. Thankfully, we we did not come close to uh, running out of uh, resources that we needed to care well for our patients. Everyone who needed to receive a ventilator received a ventilator. Um, regardless of, of what comes this fall, we will have the ability to care well for the patients in our community. Uh, I have full confidence that we're even more prepared uh, this, this time around. Um, but there was so much unknown, George, at, uh, at, at the beginning of this, that it's difficult to say how close we were. It certainly felt very close. Now, your status uh, as, as a leader in this field uh, was really 
moved up a, a few notches when you were named uh, by the governor to that, that panel, uh, Crisis Standards of Care Planning for the COVID-19 Pandemic. Uh, this was a state committee of, of health experts uh, basically working on these same con uh, concepts of how to provide care to people during this pandemic. And, and you were, I believe, the youngest member of this panel by something like 20 years. What was that experience like? It is, uh, you know, again, an awe-inspiring uh, opportunity to participate uh, at the state level. So, um, as you mentioned, Governor Baker appointed uh, a uh, Massachusetts Department of Public Health Crisis Standards of Care Committee, an expert uh, group of 17 individuals, uh, physicians, lawyers, uh, bioethicists, uh, many of whom hailing from Eastern Mass and uh, some of our some of the most elite institutions in in the country, Harvard, Mass General, for example, and so. It was, it, it was an incredible opportunity to collaborate, to think through on a state level how we should be making decisions and smaller health systems like those in central Massachusetts, for example, and then other parts of, of Massachusetts do not have the same bandwidth and ability to have on their staff a full-time bioethicist who can help them think through these things and what their institutional approach would be. And so part of this effort was to provide guidance for those institutions that did not have the guidance that we had the luxury of having at Bay State Health or that a Mass General would have or a UMass Memorial uh, would have. And a lot of the points that were in your own white paper managed to work their way into the state plan that was eventually created. Is that how I understand it? Yes, exactly. One of the things that I had the opportunity to do was collaborate with my peers internationally, uh, my bioethics peers internationally. And so when I was formulating our ethical guidelines at Bay State Health, I had read every available both state and individual institutional policy uh, that had been developed through this time. So I had the ability to see everything as it was coming out and to anticipate some of the objections that would understandably come from uh, certain approaches. And so what I did in the Bay State policy and what's reflected in the, in the white paper is sort of a, a cherry pick approach of what I thought reflected the best moral uh, standards from each policy while avoiding some of the shortcomings of those policies put in and put together into one and then made specific to the state, made specific to the institution um, and then in the white paper made general enough that, that anyone's institution can, can implement these, these policies uh, just by inserting the, the institution's name. Um, the Crisis Standards of Care uh, Committee is, is trying to formulate an approach at the state level uh, to help us think through the things that, are, uh, that matter most, like that we can't discriminate and ought never to discriminate on an individual on the basis of race or religion or uh, culture or uh, ethnicity. And so it, it helps us frame some guidance. Interesting. We've got just a minute or two left. Talk a little bit about the pandemic itself. We, we, we seem to be perhaps uh, maybe in a lull between another storm or in advance of another storm. Or How are things looking at Bay State in, in terms of cases and hospitalizations? Uh, how are we doing with this pandemic right now? Yeah, uh, things at Bay State are, are looking generally quite good. 
we've done a wonderful job. We have excellent leadership uh, at Bay State Health. Could, I could not be more proud to work uh, at, at an institution uh, as I am to work at Bay State Health. And we are prepared uh, for whatever comes this fall, but we do need to realize that anything could happen. This could catch us by surprise again. It could be much worse than we anticipate. We simply won't know until we get there. I feel confident in our ability to, to care for our patients. Uh, Basic Health is a place that prioritizes patients and, and will, will keep Western Massachusetts safe, but it's important to wear your mask, uh, to wash your hands, to practice social distancing. These things uh, have not gone away and are just as important as, as ever before. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, Peter. We really appreciate it. Your work sounds fascinating. Uh, you're really moving up the ranks in this field, and, and we hope you continue on that trajectory. Make Western Massachusetts proud in that regard. Uh, this has uh, been the latest episode of Business Talk, a podcast brought to you by Bliss West in partnership with Living Local. We were talking with Peter DiPagola. He's the Chief Ethics Officer and Senior Director of Clinical Ethics at Bay State Health and a professor at Elms College. Peter, thank you again, and we'll see you next time on Business Talk. George, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.